Well, good morning. Glad you guys are here this morning. We have been on an unbelievable journey for the last year now. We have been going through the Gospel of Matthew, and and really kind of as we've gone through the Gospel of Matthew, I guess as I've gone through it and thought about it, you know, we've seen so much in Matthew. We've seen, you know, the teachings of Jesus. We've seen uh, so many things that Jesus has done and he said and the miracles of Jesus. And I guess as we've gone through it, you know, the, my, my ultimate goal has been this over the last year, is at the end of the day, our conclusion is this, is that because of all he said and because of all Jesus has done, we are more desperately in love with him now than we've ever been before. Amen? Amen. See, the good thing about going through Matthew is you've seen everything in context. You've seen the teachings of Jesus. You've seen the miracles. You've seen him chastise the religious leaders. And then ultimately we see where he's headed in this last hours of the Passion Week. So last week, you know, Elijah kicked us off into a brand new series as we're going to wrap up our year journey in the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to wrap it up on December 22nd, that morning. And the series we kind of launched into is a series, Cradle to the Cross. And Elijah kicked it off last week. And didn't Elijah do a great job last week? Let's give him a hand. He did an awesome job. And the thing I love about what Elijah did last week, he reminded us the journey we've been on. He talked about the Sermon on the Mount, what things that Jesus taught. He talked about the the, the encounters that Jesus had with different people. And he talked about the way that Jesus performed miracles and the compassion that Jesus had. And And the thing that he reminded us most last week, which was so important for us, was this. Is that everything that Jesus taught, everything Jesus did, every encounter that Jesus had was all leading somewhere. And the place everything was leading to was the cross. In fact, even the last hours of Jesus' life, when he experienced, as Elijah talked about, humiliation, and he experienced, you know, rejection, and he experienced betrayal, all that was leading somewhere. And where was it leading? It was leading to the cross. Now, here's why that is so important for us, and I want you to hear me this morning, is because when you read your Bible, everything here points to a central event in history, and it's the death and the resurrection of Jesus. All the Old Testament, when you read the Old Testament, you know, these are not just independent stories. These are not just like, oh, the story of Ehud, a big fat guy got a knife stuck in him and it kind of got lost. Well, that's kind of cool. Or Jericho and the walls come down. Well, that's kind of, no, no, no. Everything we read in the Old Testament is pointing us somewhere. Everything from the fall in the garden when it says that he will crush the serpent's head. And from that point forward, it's all pointing us to a moment in history, to a single event in history. Even the life and ministry of Jesus is pointing us somewhere. And then after the Gospels, when you get to the book of Acts and all the way through the end of the Bible to present, all of history is pointing us back somewhere. In fact, Apostle Paul, who I love, in the book of 1 Corinthians, he gets so wrapped up with the stupidity of the Corinthian church, there's a couple of moments throughout his writings, he just pauses and he simply says this, Christ crucified. Kind of like, you guys are really screwing this thing up. So let me take you back to what makes most sense. Jesus died for you. The point is this, all the Old Testament and all the New Testament point to an event, the cross and the resurrection. Now, why is that so important? Listen, that is the lens that you should read scripture. Because if there was no cross and there was no resurrection, guess what? there would be no salvation. Amen? Everything points there. So today, maybe one of my favorite messages to talk about, we are going to talk about the cross of Christ. So if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 27 is where I'm going to be. Now, when you think about the cross, 
Oftentimes, when we think of the cross and we hear messages on the cross, we focus on the brutality of the cross. And don't, don't make no mistakes about it. We often focus on the brutality and the significance of the brutality. And I want to say it right up front. The brutality of the cross is unparalleled to any other torture ever known in human history. It was the most brutal corporal punishment that had ever, or capital punishment that had ever, ever taken place. Rome's form of crucifixion was more painful than anything any of us could ever imagine. So there's no doubt that the fact that Jesus' body was beaten and was bruised and the stripes he had on his back and the cross he had to carry and the nails in his feet and the nails in his hands and the way they treat him, there's no doubt the physical pain that he went through points to a great significance to us. There's also, sometimes we talk about the cross as not just the physical brutality, we talk about the blood that was shed. That Jesus on that cross shed his blood for us, and he did. And there's no doubt that has got big significance for us because the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there can be what? No forgiveness of sin. But today I want to do something a little different. I don't want to just talk about the brutality of the body. I don't want to talk about the blood that was shed. Those are obviously the most significant parts of the cross. But I want you to look at Matthew's gospel, and I want you to see four things that maybe you've never really seen before. There are four events that point to the significance of the cross outside of the body that was beaten, outside of the blood that was shed. There are four events that show us, in addition to that, the significance of the cross. And the first one's found in chapter 27, verse 45. You have it. Look with me. It says this. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. Here's the first event. Are you ready? The first event is darkness. The first thing I want you to notice about the cross is there was darkness. Now, Jesus was put on the cross at 9 a.m. And the first three hours that he was on the cross, a lot of things happened. Within that first three hours, you hear the words of Jesus. Now, you can take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You can put them together and see this kind of chronologically. But one of the first things you hear Jesus say as he looks out and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, I, I, I don't want to camp there, but I just want to say this. Let's, let's put this in context out of everything else we've seen. What compassion must there have been in the heart of Jesus to look at people who have mocked him, laughed at him, betrayed him, rejected him, humiliated him, and with compassion he looks at them and says, Father, just forgive them. They don't get it. They will, but they don't. What compassion for him to do that? So we see these words in the first three hours. We also see in the first three hours a mocking of Jesus. In fact, if you were to back up and look, and we won't read it, but if you were to back up and look in verse 32 through 44, you would see how they mocked Jesus. And it wasn't just one group. It was a lot of groups that mocked Jesus. It starts with the mocking as the, the Roman soldiers. They thought, okay, we're going to mock Jesus, and here's how we're going to do it. We're going to, in all three languages of the day, we're going to put king of the Jews in all three of them and put at the top of his cross. What a humiliation that would have been for people to look at it in Greek and Aramaic and even Hebrew and go, the king of the Jews, ha, ha, ha. Now, the funny thing is, honestly, that in their quest to humiliate it, they just declared who he was to everybody everywhere, that he was king. Amen? And so they humiliated him. And then you've got the, the, the soldiers who've not only humiliated him, then you've got the thieves on the cross. It says they reviled him. They were making fun of him. They were saying, hey, save yourself. And then you get the religious leaders who were saying, hey, guess what? You know, you, you say that you save people. Why don't you say yourself? You say you pray to God. Let God deliver you. People were mocking Jesus. 
And so in this, this, thought, this first three hours, we see forgiveness, we see mocking. Luke tells us that also we see this. We see that Jesus looks to one of the men on the thief on the cross who had changed his tone and says, today, you'll be with me in paradise. Now think about it. A guy who formerly had just been mocking him has a change of heart, and yet Jesus in compassion goes, today, not tomorrow, but today, you're going to be with me in glory. So these first three hours are jam-packed full of stuff. And then something happens, that's from nine to noon, and then at noon something happens. According to Matthew's gospel, at the noon hour, from noon to three o'clock, that darkness comes over the earth. Now, I just want to tell you, because some of you may be the scholarly type, and you like to study, and because that's the way I'm wired, I love to study. But I just want to tell you, some people try to discount this with where there must have been a really long eclipse that happened. Or there must have been a really great cluster of cloud cover that came and covered the sun. I just want to say this to you. None of that's true. It wasn't an eclipse. It wasn't a cloud cover. There was darkness that came over the earth for those three days. Now, why would there be darkness? Well, think about it. Darkness is a picture. Darkness, all throughout Scripture, darkness is a picture of judgment. It's a picture of God's wrath. In fact, if you remember all the way back in Egypt when the 10 plagues that God put on Pharaoh for not letting his people go, one of those plagues was, guess what? Darkness. Reminding him that he was bringing judgment on Egypt. Let me say this. Do you know what hell's often referred to? As a place of what? Darkness. See, darkness is a picture of divine judgment. And the point is this, is that time for God to judge sin had come. And so darkness comes over the earth. And in the midst of this darkness, we hear Jesus cry out. Look with me in verse 46. He cries out at the ninth hour. That's the noon hour. Jesus cried out into a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is this, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Now, I want you to think about that statement for a moment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the midst of this darkness, God is announcing his judgment that is coming on this world. It's a time for sin to be judged because God is just and justice must come. And so darkness is in the air. There's darkness everywhere. And in the midst of this darkness, at the beginning of the darkness, Jesus cries out with a loud cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why would Jesus cry that out? Here's why. First of all, because in that moment, Jesus became our substitute. In that moment. Think about it. In that moment, he took your place. In that moment, he took my place. Jesus, in that moment, took on the full wrath and the full judgment of God for us. Now, the last several weeks I've been praying about, is there a way to illustrate this that would move you spiritually like I hope it would move you? And the conclusion I've come to is no, there's no words to paint a picture for what Jesus had done for us in this moment. That the reason he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is because in that moment, he took our place. He was our substitute. In that moment, he absorbed the full, not partial, the full wrath and the judgment of God because he loves us. Now, while I don't have words to paint that picture, Isaiah sure did. 
Isaiah 53 says this. Surely he bore our griefs and he carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him not. Smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement brought us peace. And with his wounds we are what? Healed. And we like sheep have all gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord shall lay on him the iniquity of us all. Listen. And the Lord shall lay on him the iniquity of us all. Let's read it together. And the Lord shall lay on him the iniquity of us all. Now read it like you mean it. And the Lord shall lay on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus laid, the, the God of the Father laid the price and the payment of sin, the judgment and the wrath that was to come on sin, every, of every sin of everybody who's ever lived, and he put it on his son in that moment. Why? Because he loves us. I don't know about you, but that should stir us, should it not? As a believer, is there something inside of you going, you mean my sin? Is that horrific? Yes, it is. Our sin separates us from a holy God. Our sin sends us down a path where we deserve death, hell, and the grave. But Jesus took our place. And Isaiah says, and the Lord, the Father, has laid on him, Jesus, the sins of us all. Are you thankful for that this morning? Amen? Amen. So in this moment of darkness, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Because in that moment, he became our substitute. Also, because Jesus knew that if for Jesus to do what Jesus had to do, to take on the full wrath and the full judgment of God, that there was going to be a moment that the Father had to turn away. A father who knows no sin, could see no sin, had to turn his back on his one and only son. Now, just a quick question for all the dads in the room. If you saw your child in great distress, being humiliated, mocked, put into a place where ultimately destruction was coming, would you turn your back on your son? You'd fight, wouldn't you? You'd fight. Hey, let's just be honest. If we were Jesus and we're not, none of us are, that, are perfect, let's not say that. But I'm just, hypothetically, if I'm Jesus and I'm on the cross and I'm looking at the crowd that mocked me, I'm looking at the crowd that, that, that kind of railed me, I'm looking at the crowd that rejected me, guess what I'm praying on that cross? Father, wipe them out. Right, aren't you? I mean, there's not compassion in me. I want justice. But yet Jesus had the greatest compassion. And in the moment, he took on the full weight of the judgment and the wrath of God. The moment he became our substitute, the father turned his back on his son. So that Jesus, who knew no sin, could become sin. That we might have a relationship with God. Can you think of any better picture of what love looks like than that? I can't. In this moment of darkness, Jesus cries out. Then Matthew tells us in verse 50 that Jesus cries out one more time at the end of these three hours of darkness. He cries out one more time. But Matthew doesn't tell us what he cries. But John, you can write this down. John chapter 19 verse 30 tells us what Jesus cries out. And just at the end of this last three hours of darkness, Jesus cries out first, my God, my God, will you forsaken me? And then we go through this three hours of darkness where he's taking on the wrath and the judgment of God, and the Father has turned his back on his Son so that he can become sin for us and die for us and make a payment for us. At the very end of this three hours of darkness, Jesus cries out this according to John 19, Tetelestai, which means it is 
finished. Let's say that together. It is finished. You say, Doug, well, it's finished. When Jesus cried out, it is finished, he's saying, I have satisfied all the Old Testament prophecies. I have satisfied what the law requires for salvation. When he says it is finished, he's saying the ransom for sin has been paid in full. The wages of sin have been settled forever. The work of salvation, it is complete. In that moment, he says it is finished. He's saying, Father, it's done. I've done the work of salvation. I've paid the ransom for sin. The wages of sin have been settled forever because of my death on the cross. It is finished. Now, what I find most amazing about these verses is this. At the beginning of the three hours, we see a cry of great anguish. And at the end, we see a cry of victory. Amen? Anguish to have separation. That for the only time in eternity, there was a separation from the Trinity. A Trinity that was disconnected for a moment. The only time in all of eternity, there was a separation of the Trinity. A cry of great anguish. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then at the end, we see a cry of great victory. And he says, it is finished. I want you to know that one of the most significant events surrounding the cross, that remind us of the beauty of the cross, is the darkness that came over the earth. Let me give you the second event. It's found in verse 50, verse 351. It says this, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit, meaning he gave up his spirit. He, no one took it. He gave it up. He died in that moment. Verse 51, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the whole earth shook, shook and the rocks were split. Now, the second event that we see around this cross is this, is that the veil was torn. Now, let me tell you about the veil for just a minute. This veil was not, and sometimes it's called a curtain. Let me reassure you, this was not a curtain like you'd put up in your house, all right? You get a little few dowel rods, you throw up a curtain, you cover up a window, you're good to go. That's not what this was. Most scholars would tell you the curtain or the veil separated what is known as the holy place from the holy of holies. Now, the holy of holies was the place that represented the presence of God. And only one time a year could a mediator go in between man and God and go into the Holy of Holies and offer sacrifice. And that mediator was the high priest. One time a year, he would go into the Holy of Holies and he would offer sacrifice and the shedding of blood. And that blood would atone for the sins of all of Israel one time a year. And then the holy place on the other side of the curtain, the other side of the veil, in the holy place, that's where the Jews would come and worship. But they would know the high priest would go in to offer sacrifice for them. And here's what Jesus, and here's what Matthew tells us. That the moment that Jesus died, the veil was torn. See, the veil separates us. Why? Because it's a reminder. The veil was always a reminder that sin separates us from God. That because God is holy and we are sinful, we don't have direct access to God. We don't have direct access where we can get to God. And so there always had to be a mediator. There always had to be someone between man and God to bridge the gap. And there always had to be a blood sacrifice. But Matthew says, in the moment Jesus died, the veil, the curtain was torn. And it wasn't torn from bottom to top because that would imply that man somehow worked their way up to God. Now, let me say this. That curtain, that veil, most scholars would tell you that it would weigh several hundreds of pounds. It took teams of men to set up this, this veil in the temple when it was originally built. So there was nobody. It's not like cellophane. They were just kind of tearing it all, working on the wall. That's not what it was. 
And he says it was torn from top to bottom, not bottom to top, because bottom to top would mean somehow we've worked our way, earned our right with God. But it was torn from top to bottom, reminding us that God is the initiator, that God himself removed the barrier between man and God, that we no longer would need a man high priest because we had the high priest, that man would no longer need a blood sacrifice from an animal because Jesus was the permanent sacrifice for us. God himself tore the veil from top to bottom saying, now I want to have a relationship with you and access to me is granted to everybody through my son, Jesus. Is that good news for you this morning? Man, that's great news because when you think about the darkness, you know, the darkness, we're just, the significance of the darkness is, is that Jesus took our place, our penalty for our sin. But the significance of the veil being torn is that the way to God is through Jesus alone. We no longer need a human high priest. We have the high priest. We no longer need a, a sacrifice of an animal. Jesus was our sacrifice. He shed his blood for us. The veil was torn. Listen, what a picture of how the Heavenly Father saying, I want to be in relationship with you. On your best day, with your best effort, you never could do enough or be good enough to gain access to me. So I put my son on the cross to take the full weight of the wrath and the judgment on sin. He became sin for you. And I've torn the veil to show you I want to be close to you. I want a relationship with you. And all you have to do is come to faith through my son Jesus. See, the significance of the veil being torn is that the way to God is through Jesus alone. Let me give you the third event we see. It's in verse 52 through 53. Now, I'm just going to be real honest as we get into this. These two verses here, I've never heard a passage ever talked about. Because it's one of these passages that when you read it, you're like, I don't know what to do with that. So we're going to figure it out today. Verse 52 says this. Then the tombs were all opened and many were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and they appeared to many. Listen, here's a third big event. The dead were raised. The dead were raised. Now think about this. Jesus in this darkness is dying on the cross. At the end of the darkness, he cries out. He says, it is finished. At the point of his death, what happens? What happens is the veil is torn and then the dead are raised. Just think about it. The tombs are opened up and people come out. This is the original walking dead, right? Except they weren't dead. They were resurrected. They weren't, some of you that are older, okay, the night of the living dead. You remember the movie? Okay, this wasn't even that. These people were resurrected. Now, who were these people? We're told that these were the Old Testament saints. Not all the Old Testament saints, but a few of the Old Testament saints. People in the Old Testament who put their faith in God. And the question that I think we all should ask is, why in the world would the Old Testament saints raise from the dead at the death of Christ? So here's why. And I want you to hear me. This is, I'm going to jump into a really deep theological mud. I'm going to jump right back out if I can. Here it is. You ready? Because even the Old Testament saints' salvation depended on Jesus' death on the cross. It did. If Jesus had not died on the cross, their faith in God in the Old Testament was in vain. They were waiting for Jesus' death too. Here's the best way to explain it. Anybody, don't raise your hand. If you've got a credit card in the room, 
You know how credit cards work, right? You go to the store. Like after you're done here, you're probably going to go eat with somebody. Maybe you ought to take somebody to lunch today. And you're going to go eat. And, and, you're gonna, and you may use that credit card. Now, is that real money spent at that moment? No. But you're swiping that card so that when the bill comes due 30 days later, that you're banking, that you have enough money in the bank to do what? Pay for the bill. Listen, all the people of the Old Testament put their faith in God on credit banking that one day Jesus was going to pay the bill. Amen? And he did. So even the Old Testament people, they rose. I mean, can you, listen, just be a person alive back then. Darkness has happened. Jesus dies. The veil is torn. Can you imagine the high priest who just left? The, I mean, he probably would have put his sacrifice in about four or five o'clock, and he's left, and now it's six o'clock, and he's still doing his priestly duties, and all of a sudden he turns, and he sees the veil being torn? Can you imagine being a passerby in the city of Jerusalem, and all of a sudden tombs start opening up, and people, I mean, I mean, would you not freak out just a little bit? Why? Because the death of Christ changed everything. It rocked, literally, it rocked the world. His death. Now, the fact that these guys came alive, and only to come alive after his resurrection, said they even went into the city and they appeared, meaning they went to the city and began to talk about what Jesus has done, that he died and that he's alive. And that's really creepy, right? Why? Because Jesus impacts everything. And it says they went to the city. Now, for this resurrection and for these people to go proclaim the good news of Christ, what does that mean? That means that Jesus must be God. Because only God can resurrect the dead. Amen? He must be God. It means that the death has been defeated. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? I mean, the death has lost its sting. Death has been defeated. The grave is no longer the end for us. And if we have a relationship with Christ, one day we too will be resurrected and will be with him forever. That's good news, amen? Now, the significance of the dead being raised is that it reminds us that Jesus defeated death, sin, and the grave. There's one more event I want you to look at. And it's found in verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with what? They were filled with what? All. And said, truly, this was... The Son of God. The fourth event I want you to notice is that the Roman centurion confessed Christ. He confessed Jesus. Now I want you to think about what did he experience? What did the Roman centurion experience? He experienced the taunting of Jesus. He experienced the trials because he was the, he was the highest of the highest in the Roman soldiers. So he experienced the trials. He experienced the crucifixion. He's the one that would have made the commands to do what they did. He experienced it all. Think about what he heard. Standing at the cross, there's seven statements that he would have heard Jesus say. One of them being, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Another one being, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Another one being, it is finished. He would have heard all the statements of Jesus. And then think about what he saw. At the death of Jesus, he saw the earth erupt. He saw the world get shaken. And based on what he experienced... Based on what he saw and based on what he heard, what did he conclude? Surely, this is the Son of God. Now, just a real quick thought. If you've been alive for any length of period of time, 
Life throws us crazy curveballs, doesn't it? Life brings great tragedies. Life brings hurts. Life brings joys called kids. And then they hit teenagers and we're back to tragedy again, right? No, I'm just kidding. And we've had all that stuff, but listen to me. Just hear, hear me out. With all that you've experienced and all that you've heard and all that you've seen, what conclusion have you come to about Jesus? As we've gone through the Gospel of Matthew and we've heard his teachings, we've seen these miracles, out of all that we've seen, out of all that we've heard, and maybe in our lives, out of all we've experienced, what is the conclusion that we have come to about Jesus? See, this Roman centurion, out of everything he experienced, heard and saw, he said, surely he is the Son of God. I find it really interesting that the first Christian convert was a Gentile Roman centurion. Think about it. The first Christian convert was a Gentile Roman centurion. Now, why is this confession so significant? Here's why. Because it reminds us that Jesus' love and forgiveness extends to all. The love and the forgiveness of Christ extends to everybody. Now, when you think about the cross, I know we like to think about the cross and where they nailed him, his feet, his hands, and the spear, what they did, and the blood that was shed, and the body that was beat. I get all that, and that is so significant, and I don't want to diminish that at all. But when I read Matthew's gospel, there's other things that occurred that remind us equally of the significance of the cross. That darkness reminds us that Jesus became our substitute. He took our place and our penalty for our sin. He was even willing to have a separate moment from the Father just to die for us. It's important for us to remember that the veil was torn, that God said, you're never going to work your way to me, so I'm going to come down to you. That's why Jesus, who, who became one of us, John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? It's important to know that he tore the veil. He initiated a relationship with us. It's important for us to remember that the dead were raised, that if we have a relationship with Christ, that we too one day will be raised. And it's important for us to remember that the good news of Jesus goes to everyone who accepts it. Nor Jew, nor Gentile, nor Greek, nor female, nor male, nor slave, nor free. The good news of Jesus is for everyone. Now let me tell you why this is such a big deal for me, all right? When I think about the cross and the significance of the cross, here's the reason I love this passage. Because it reminds me that the cross is the exact place where the full wrath and the full love of God meets. Right? The cross is the place where the ultimate wrath and the ultimate love of God come together. I love the cross because it reminds me of the seriousness of sin, but the seriousness of God's love for us. I love the cross because it reminds me that God poured out the full wrath and judgment he had for sin on his son instead of pouring it out on me. I love the cross because through faith, that's the place I find eternal life. Now, here's something I want you to think about as we close. When you think about what Jesus endured, is it safe and fair to say that he was all in for us? Is that fair to say Amen. You're not convinced. Do you think he was all in for us? Amen? Amen? Amen, he was. The question I think we need to ask ourselves is this. Are we all in for him? What I mean is, are you all in in your pursuit of him? 
When it comes to reading your Bible, is it a chore to do? Or do you view this thing as, man, this, this is God telling me how to live my life. This is God telling me how he loves me, how he wants me to love people. I mean, do you, are, you, are you all in in your pursuit of him? And reading your Bible and praying and pursuing, are you all in? Are you all in in your obedience? Maybe you're here today and you say, man, I, I'm a follower of Jesus, but you're, but you're not serving anywhere. Well, if there's anything that Jesus modeled, it was serving. I mean, in the Last Supper, do you remember in John 13 what he did? He took a towel and got on his knees, and he washed his nasty disciples' feet. And he said, as I've done this to you, do it to others. And maybe you're here today, and you say, man, I'm following Jesus. I'm all in, but you're not serving. But before you leave today, you need to sign up to serve somewhere. Listen, <coughs> our children's ministry is exploding right now. Man, we've set a course over the last year and a half, and Sherry's taken and growing it, and then Jerry's taken and growing it, and some great things are happening. We need workers. Our hospitality, we always need smiling, bright faces to welcome people as they walk through those doors. And maybe you're here today, and you say, man, I'm following Jesus, but you're not serving. Well, you're not all in. I know it hurts to say that, but it's true. You need to find a place to serve. Or maybe you're here today and say, man, I'm all in, but you're not giving. Well, listen, if Jesus can give everything he had, shouldn't we give back to him a small portion of what he's given us? Isn't that just a reflection of our love for him? Or maybe you're here today, and it's not about giving or it's not about serving, but maybe you're not community. Listen, you can go all the way back to Genesis and find this truth out. You were built for community. You were built to be around people. You were built. That's why Scripture talks about iron sharpening iron. We, whether you like it or not, we need each other. We do. As weird, as dysfunctional, and as misplaced as we are sometimes, we need each other. You may think everybody else is jacked up around you, but I got good news for you. You're jacked up too. We need each other. And you say, Doug, I'm all in, but I'm not in community. You're not all in. You got a foot in. I'm asking, are you all in? And then maybe there's some of you here today say, Doug, I'm all in, man. I'm, I'm serving. I'm giving. I'm a community. But you've never followed the Lord in baptism. You're a Christian who's never made a public declaration of your faith in Christ through baptism. You're not all in. You need to take that step. See, if you're a believer here today, my question for you is, are you all in? Are you all in in your pursuit of him? Are you all in in your obedience to him? And if not, I'm going to ask you to take a big step today. I'm going to ask you in just a moment. In fact, go ahead and right now, grab that, that welcome card that was in your worship folder. Grab one. If you can't find it, there's probably one in the seat in front of you. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. You do not have to sign this at all. I'm not asking you to sign it unless you want to. Because, listen, as your pastor, I want to pray for you. I pray for you. When I have prayer cards, I pray for you by name every day during that week. And I want to pray for you. But here's what I'm going to ask you to do with that card, all right? I'm, here's the challenge for today. Take that card. It's okay. If I'm not all in, Why? Is it because I'm not only in my pursuit? So maybe I need, to, I, I need to write down, I need to read my Bible more. Or I need to pray more. Or maybe you say, Doug, I'm not all in my obedience. I'm not giving. I need, I need to commit to being a giver. Or I need to commit to serve. I need to commit to community. Or I need to commit to baptism. If that's you today, would you just put one of those down on that card? And in just a moment, if you have the courage and you feel led by the Holy Spirit, would you just come to this altar and just lay them on these steps and say, Lord, today... I am all in. Would you do that with me today as you're, if you're a believer? Some of you, I know you, because you're like me, you're like, I'm not doing that. Okay. But will you do it in your heart at least? I'm all in. Well, really, are you? Because if you talk gruff like I, if you feel like I just talk, you're probably not all in. You're angry about something. 
Are you all in? Jesus was all in. Are you all in in your pursuit and in your obedience? And then the last question I have is this. Maybe you're here today and the question I need to ask you is this. Is are you in at all? Have you ever come to a saving faith in Jesus? See, when I look at this passage, what I'm reminded is the magnitude, the breadth, and the width of God's love for us. And today, maybe for the first time, you need to say, I need to step in. I need to give my life to Jesus. It's as simple as acknowledging that you're a sinner, that you've made mistakes, that you've blown it, that you've, that you've disobeyed God, but today you ask him to forgive you of your sins and you surrender your life to him. And if you'll pray that, I ask you too to take that card and fill it out and put your name on it. Say, today I gave my life to Jesus. And then a little bit later, the offering plate passes, you can drop it in there. And I will touch base with you because I want to talk to you about that decision. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do right now. Everybody stand with me if you would. Everybody stand up. Everybody stand up. Every head bowed and every eye closed, just for a moment. Just before we lead into a moment of invitation. And I'm just going to say to you as a believer, every head bowed and every eye closed, I, I challenge you to grab that card and to write something down. Maybe it's you're reading your Bible. Maybe it's praying. Maybe it's those other things I mentioned like serving, giving, community, baptism. Would you make a decision as you think about the cross as a believer and think about what Jesus has done for you, the darkness that came as he took on the weight of our sin, the veil that was torn reminding us that God the Father wants a relationship with us? The Roman centurion, after all he had seen and heard, concluded that he is God? If that's your story, would you make a decision today that you're going to be all in? Maybe you need to come pray at this altar. Maybe you need to come and just take that card and lay it on these steps and say, Lord, I'm all in, and this is the area I'm struggling, and this is the area that I'm going to get after. Or maybe you're here today and you've never trusted him. In the quietness of your own heart, would you just say, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I ask you to forgive me for my sins. I believe that you died on a cross and that you rose again and I surrender my life to you. And if you just pray that in the, in the sweetness in the moment, you'll be saved. Your name will be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And if you made that decision, we would love to know about it. You can either fill out the card or you can see me in just a moment. I want to hear your story. But however the Lord's leading you this morning, would you be faithful to respond, whether it's come to the altar and pray or come to lay your, your, your card down saying that you're all in or giving your life to Christ? Would you respond as the Lord leads you? Father, I love you. I thank you for today. God, I guess there's just a part of me, deep within me, that wants us to be spiritually moved by today. That when we think, I know we can't go back to that day. I know it's almost impossible to imagine. But Lord, as we sit here and we think about that moment, those last three hours of Jesus' life, when darkness came over the earth, may we understand the magnitude of why that darkness came. Your judgment had come for sin. And Jesus took our place. God, I just pray that that wrecks us. I just pray that that moves us. I pray there's something inside of me that is stirred by that. And it would stir us to the point, Lord, where we would say, Lord, I'm all in. I'm all in in my pursuit of you. And I'm all in in my obedience to you. And whatever's keeping me from pursuing you, whatever's keeping me from being obedient to you, God, I'm going to put those things aside and I'm all in. God, I pray we would make that statement today. Lord, I pray for those who don't know you that today they might receive you. 
they might have prayed that prayer and said yes to Jesus. God, would you move in this place? Would your spirit fall fresh on us? Would you challenge us today? And God, if necessary, if we are hard-hearted today, would you break our hearts? Would you wreck us inside and remind us how much you truly love us? And then may we, like Isaiah, be faithful to respond. We love you, Lord. For it's in your precious son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. The altar's open. If you want to come pray, you can come pray. If you want to come and just lay your card down, say, man, I'm all in, and here's where I'm struggling, but I'm, gonna, I'm working on this. You respond as the Lord leads you.